Thanks for listening to the World Religions Podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I'm teaching at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you might hear some people asking questions. Uh, unfortunately, due to the nature of the podcast recording software, it probably is not going to come through, but I'll do my best to represent those questions fairly in a way that you can hear them. Other than that, everything should be good to go, so enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. So I was raised Christian. Uh, I was raised in a, and I was very, very early, I was in a Methodist church because both of my parents were raised Methodist, and then when they moved to Kansas City, they found a Baptist church, then I was Baptist, and I couldn't ever tell the difference uh, growing up, and so then it was after I actually worked in a Baptist church before I came here, and now I'm Nazarene, so I've, I've been in the Christian church, in the evangelical church my whole life. Uh, other religions that I'm familiar with, I have some some good friends who are Hindu or Buddhist, and so I know a, a decent amount about those faiths. I also have several friends who are atheists, and so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of atheist positions on things, and we're going to be talking about, eventually, why atheism counts as a religion, at least for our purposes. Uh, some of the religions that I find the most foreign uh, are those like Hinduism or uh, even actually more uh, some of the, the Eastern Asian religions like Taoism or Confucianism, uh, the ones that don't have an active personal God. Uh, th- those are just very, very different from the way I see the world. And so when I, when I, it takes me longer to understand how they see the world and why, why the world works the way it does from their perspective. And so, uh, and yeah, so that. And then what I hope to gain from this class is actually the whole point of the rest of our class today. So I'll be talking all about that. And again, as we, as we move through this whole class, uh, not just today, but through the through the next uh, couple couple of months, uh, hopefully you'll have a, a deeper understanding of some people that uh, maybe you were formerly afraid to talk to. In most of, especially the last hundred years of, of evangelicalism, we have prized evangelism. Uh, which is telling people about Jesus and the most simple way to understand that. Uh, when I was growing up, we in youth group, we had training courses about how to evangelize people. We got little tracks to hand out that had, you know, different uh, different explanations of the path to Jesus. The the most offensive one I ever saw was one disguised as a $20 bill. Uh, and when you were supposed to leave it instead of leaving a tip, and it, on, on the $20 bill, it, you opened it and it wasn't money. And it said, are you disappointed? You won't be if you invite Jesus into your heart. And I was like... I think someone would get stabbed if they gave this to a server. Like, wow. Um, uh, so, so I mean, I, I, I took, I did some of that, but even I would say even my experience was fairly, uh, fairly tame compared to previous generations. And some of you who have been in the church uh, for a long time know that you could you could safely say that in, in general there's been a decline in the emphasis and that sort of like uh, strict. Uh, encouraged evangelism training in churches. Uh, and so today, I think most Christians, I'm going to speak in broad generalities, but my experience says this is true, most Christians are really scared of evangelism. They find it to be something that's really, really intimidating. And they don't know how to go about it. They don't know how to go about talking with other people about Jesus, especially if those people are from another faith and they look scary or intimidating. Uh, the reason that's interesting is because it's getting unavoidable in our world. Uh, and I heard, I think I heard this group talking about it. Uh, there was a day when you only heard about other religions like Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam on the news. 
And it was, they were religions that were just in other countries. And so in an abstract way, like you knew that they were there, but everyone around you was either Christian or like at least nominally Christian or probably at least was raised Christian. Uh, and, and that's just the way it was. And so if you were going to learn about other religions, it was sort of a dry academic exercise, like you might have had it in a high school class or something like that. But, but it was rare for you to work with or live next to or uh, have to engage in any sort of significant way, someone who really, truly practiced a different faith than you do. Uh, today, that is just not the case. Uh, I mean, how many, how many of you, just show of hands, work with or live near or interact with on a regular basis someone who's not Christian? Okay, almost everyone in the room. That, if we'd asked this question 30 years ago, it, there would not have been that many hands. And that's a, that, that's a huge change that the church is really still trying to figure out. Uh, we don't really know how to engage people of other faiths when they're next door or at work or in our backyard. And the reason it's so difficult, I think, is because what we're really talking about is when, you, when you're talking about people of other religions, you're talking about clashes of worldviews. Okay? It's, uh, you know, and, and, and there's really, it really is different from different kinds of Christianity. I mean, when you're, when you're, Dealing with different kinds of Christianity, especially if it's all European Christianity. So if you're Catholic or Protestant, any kind of Protestant, um, all the 15 billion kinds of Protestants there are. But if you're Catholic or any one of those kinds of Protestant, um, you know, we all see the world the same way. Uh, we all have the same set of core values. We all have the same ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And if you've ever traveled internationally uh, or if you've ever... Uh, spent a good amount of time with someone who is from another country that's not Europe or the United States, uh, you start to see that a lot of times they just see the world completely differently. Uh, and I, I have, uh, there's one example, and it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's not a great example, but uh, when I was in Egypt a couple of years ago, I was actually there two months before the revolution, which we, of course, didn't know it's time, but in retrospect, a little bit scary. <laughs> but uh, but when, when I was over there, I noticed uh, I noticed something a big difference between Western culture and Middle Eastern culture, and that is that in Western culture, uh, we generally assume that if someone if I don't know someone that I should treat them fairly, uh, as particularly in a marketplace transaction. Uh, if I walk into Speedway and I don't have a personal relationship with the clerk, which I I don't have, I don't know any of them. Uh, they charge me the same amount for a Snickers bar that they would if a friend of theirs from high school walked in. And I, and, and that's just the way it is because it's a, there's a certain price on it and that, and they charge that and that's it. Uh, in Middle Eastern cultures, and, uh, it, it doesn't matter. There's two kinds of people. There's family and enemies. And by enemy, you see, we think enemy like bombs and stuff like that. But all that means is, and you see this especially if you ever go into any of the bazaars or ever try to purchase anything over there. Uh, if you, if you're not my family, if you're not my, you know, my, my people, then I have almost like a moral obligation to get as much money from you as I can. So if my mom or my brother or just a good friend of mine who's not technically biologically related but still in my group comes in and gets a Snickers bar, I might charge him, you know, a, a buck or whatever. If you come in and I don't know you, it's going to be like five bucks, ten bucks if you'll pay it. We'll see, you know, how much. So I'll just, I'll throw out some kind of exorbitant. And this is where the the process of haggling comes in, right? The, this whole system was created in a culture where uh, 
outsiders are considered enemies or foreigners, right? And so, so I try, I suggest an exorbitant price. You're like, oh, ten dollars, and you go, ten dollars? That's not worth a penny. I'd give you maybe a dime for that, but I'm not giving you ten dollars. And I turn, you turn around to walk out, and I'm like, whoa, 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 okay, whoa, whoa. And then we go into this negotiation because you're trying to get as much from me as you can. You're trying to get the best deal because I'm a stranger, and I'm trying to get you for as much money as possible because you're a stranger. Now, when Westerners travel to the Middle East or to any culture, the Central, South and Central America, any culture that haggles like that, it drives us insane. We're like, can you not just put a price tag on it? Like, I don't want to spend five hours bartering over the price of this. I just want to, I just want to buy it. And I want to leave. I don't want to go home. And so we go over there and we think, man, these people are silly and they're ignorant and they're stupid. And why can't they just get on board the 21st century? Blah, blah, blah. But, they come over to us and they're like, you mean you just give people something? Like when you take a dollar when you could get five out of them? Like that's stupid. That's ignorant. Like why would you do, you know? And so the, and, and of course we think we're right. And of course they think they're right. And the truth is probably somewhere, somewhere in between. That's what we mean when we start talking about clashing worldviews. And that's the reason that fights get so out of hand, especially when we're talking about different religions. Because, because a religion at its base is an entire way of seeing the world. It's not just believing in God. In fact, some of the religions we're going to be studying don't believe in God. A religion is an entire way of seeing the world. It's an entire value system. And it's an entire understanding of who we are and what the world is and what our relationship to it is and what our relationship to each other is. And when, when, when my understanding of that, when my religion is different from your religion, uh, we can't... You, we can't usually just like smile and get along because it's so different that we can't actually operate in the world in the same way a lot of times. And so, again, that's, that's why a lot of the nastiest wars in our history have been fought in the name of religion. Because what we're actually fighting about is about who gets to decide the way the world is. Does that make sense? Okay. So the question that we really need to ask and the question I think a lot of us are asking, I think the, lot, the reason a lot of you are here, is because we want to know, we, we experience this pluralism, we experience this clash of worldviews, and even if we don't, even if we've never put a name on it before, like we just did, we want to know, well, how am I supposed to be light in the midst of all of that? You know, it was easier 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years ago when basically everyone was just Christian, and you could just kind of like be what everyone else was. And you didn't actually have to have arguments about values and worldviews and stuff like that. And too bad we don't live there anymore. The reality of our world is that it is pluralistic. The reality of our country is that it's pluralistic. And it's probably not changing anytime soon. So we need to ask, in a serious way, how do we be the light in the midst of so many competing worldviews? And the good news for us is that this world that we live in actually looks a lot more like the first century world that Jesus was born into than a monolithic religion. Jesus was born into a world, and the early Christians operated in a world where there were tons and tons and tons of competing worldviews. And so when we look back at how the first Christians spread the good news about Jesus, and even how Jesus himself lived and acted in the midst of, of a culture that didn't necessarily agree with him, we can see some really interesting suggestions about how we go about being light in a pluralistic world. And they're things that I want to shape how we study all of these faiths. So first, let's go back and talk about the first century. Uh, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the good news or the gospel. 
And that's a word that if some of you, if you, if you were here when we talked about this on a Sunday a few weeks ago, this will all be repeat for you, but it's still good stuff. So uh, we actually stole the word gospel from the Romans. Uh, the word gospel, it was a, it was actually a Greek word that meant good. It literally meant good news or a good telling. It was when someone came up to you and said something happy and you're like, oh, that's good. Like that was a gospel. And the Romans used it for a, it was a, it was like a propaganda, uh, it was like a, like what we call propaganda, they called gospel. So the Romans had a particular worldview. Uh, they said every, everything in the world, peace and prosperity and goodness, all hinged on Rome being in charge. And if Caesar isn't Lord, if Caesar isn't king, if Caesar isn't ruling the world, if everyone's not doing things Rome's way, then the world's gonna be bad. And if everything, if everyone does everything Rome's way, then the world's gonna be good. And they, they called everything that went into that message the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which it was something, again, you might have heard that, that before. The idea was, if you want peace, if you want prosperity, then you do things Rome's way. And any, any event that supported Rome's claim to rule reality was a gospel. It was a, good, it was a piece of good news. And they called it good news because it was like, hey guys, good news, we're right. Yay, like good news, we're right, yay. Okay. So if a new Caesar was born, that supported Rome's claim that they were going to rule forever because look, the line of the lineage is continuing. So they would send evangelists out with this gospel message to all the corners of the empire and these evangelists would come out and say, good news everyone, a new Caesar was born. If they wanted decisive military victory that proved that Rome was right and that they had the favor of the gods, they would send evangelists out with this good news. They'd say, good news everyone, Rome conquered her foes. See, we're right. And so, uh, so of course, when the New Testament came along, God became human, and the people who followed him said, you know, it's, it's really, it's really good news that this happened. They weren't just, it wasn't just some sort of abstract thing. They were actually, they were actually directly competing with Caesar's worldview. They were, they were actually saying, so Caesar has this message about the way the world goes, but we actually have a, we have a different idea about what leads to peace and prosperity and wholeness. And it's not following the way of Caesar. It's actually following the way of this guy, Jesus. And so there's some really interesting, and we miss this because, again, we don't live under Rome's propaganda anymore. But, and I, this is, this is something I shared in a sermon a few weeks ago. So some of you, this will sound familiar. Uh, this is an inscription from a Roman calendar that was written about five years-ish before Jesus was born. Sometimes less than a decade before Jesus was born. And it says, Providence has given us Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He's the one that invented the Pax Romana. He's been ruling for about 20 years by now. So the Pax Romana is a well-established propaganda machine, right? So it says, Providence has given us Augustus, whom she filled with, a vir- with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, because he rescued the world from chaos and war, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. He's bringing peace, the peace of Rome. The birthday of the God, Augustus is alive right now, right? And they're saying the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good news for the world. And there's that word that we get gospel from, okay? Now, again, that was written less than a decade before Jesus was born, and that is quintessential Roman propaganda language. You find that kind of language used to talk about Augustus all the time, okay? This is what the angels said when Jesus was born. 
The angel said, I bring you good news. I bring you a gospel that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, same word. Yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And then when the other angels appear, he says, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. The angel is using all of the same language that Augustus used of himself, and it wasn't an accident. Okay, From Jesus' birth forward, it was clear that there is a line being drawn in the sand, and there, there are two worldviews competing with each other. So who's going to win in the end? Is it the peace of Rome, or is it the peace of God? Who's, whose news is actually good news? Well, I mean, yeah, we know that. But like that, that's, that's the line that's being established, right? That's the question that's being asked. All the way through Jesus' ministry, that's what's at stake. When the early, so, and again, now, when the early Christians go out into all of these Roman cities and they're saying, hey, we have some good news for you. People weren't just like, oh, that's nice. I wonder if, like, it's a weather report or something like that. Like, they immediately, they were expecting to hear something about Caesar or about Rome. And they were expecting to hear something like, Caesar is Lord. And then the Christians would go, this guy Jesus, he's Lord. And everyone's like, we're going to take a few steps back because the, the legions are going to be here any minute. And everyone knows what happens when you don't follow Rome's way. Things go very, very, very badly for you. So from, from the beginning, we have, well, the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, we have, a, we have a clash of worldviews. And the Christians understood that when they were taking the message about Jesus into the world, they were competing with other worldviews. Does that make sense? They did it intentionally. The words that they chose were intentionally words that were used by Rome to support the Roman worldview. So when they were borrowing them, I mean, that would be like if some guy got up on a platform and got on network television and gave a State of the Union address and it wasn't the president. We would all meet and he was like, here's my State of the Union address. We would all go, uh-oh. I hope that dude's just insane because if not, he's in a whole lot of trouble. Right? And that's, that's the same kind of reaction that people would have had to the first Christians. And when they, when they chose the words like gospel and Lord and Savior... To describe Jesus, it wasn't, they weren't, you know, they didn't like get together later and go, oh, we probably should have chosen other words. Like that was on purpose. They were specifically saying, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. So, before we get into how they spread this gospel, I want to, I want to dial in a little bit on per, exactly what Jesus' gospel news is. So, first of all, um, this is all from the Gospel of John, which is my favorite gospel. So they're all good, but this is my particularly favorite one. So from the very beginning of his gospel, when John is talking about the good news of Jesus, he says uh, in, in verse 12, To all who believed Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from a human passion or plan, but with a birth that comes from God. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. So, so the first part of this gospel. We just came off Christmas. So we all already just thought about this and talked about this. But the first part of the gospel message. Is that God left heaven and came to earth. And became one of us. In order to make us children of God. 
Right? There, was, there was a reason and a purpose for it. And so towards the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is coming through on his promise. And he says, uh, this is right before he gets arrested and then tortured and executed. He says to his disciples, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And, and then he makes a staggering statement. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything that the Father told me. So in, in woven into Jesus' gospel message is, is that God left heaven and came to earth in order to reconcile us to himself, in order to, to make friends out of us. And so theologians talk about this idea of, like, of divine friendship being at the core of, of the Christian message, that, that what the cross was all about was restoring relationship between humanity and God. That the good news is that God isn't angry, that God is seeking friendship with us. God is moving heaven and earth to be with us, to be friends with us. Again, I know that's probably a lot of that is not new information, but it's good to think about. It's good to remember that, again, when these Christians are going out into, into the world, that's the good news that they're carrying with them. You know, Rome would come and say, good news, a new Caesar was born. Good news, a war was won. Good news, we took over another, another nation. And the Christians are coming and saying, good news, the guy that made all of this stuff wants to be friends with you and has made that possible for you. And now he's waiting for you to accept that. And then they got killed for it sometimes. Rome doesn't like competition. Anyway, uh, when we are talking about worldviews, we are talking about things that are deep-seated in people. We are talking about ideas and perceptions about reality. Uh, a lot of times it involves their entire lineage, heritage, history, family, all of that kind of stuff. So change in worldview does not happen quickly. Usually, most of the time, as a rule. It's typically a slow, slow process. And if, if we're to believe the model of incarnation that we see in the scriptures, it's founded on friendship. I, I, think it's, I think it's a fascinating exercise to ask when the disciples became Christians. Because it, it wasn't right away. We know that because we know that they just thought Jesus was some teacher. He said, hey, come follow me. And they were like, all right, better than fishing. So they just left and they just started following him. And weird things kept happening around him. And he could do stuff no one else could do. And when he taught, it would just had this weight to it. And they started talking about themselves and they were like, something is weird about this guy. Something's off. He's not, he's not what we thought he was. And then there's that great moment at Caesarea Philippi uh, where Jesus goes, hey, what's the, like, what's the buzz about me? What are people saying? And they're like, I mean, some people think you're Elijah come back from the dead. Some people think you're a prophet. Like, as mixed reports. And Jesus is like, who do you think I am? And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, yep. Now don't tell anyone. And we find out that you're not supposed to tell anyone because they still don't really understand what that means. They don't understand that that means that he's going to be crucified and resurrected. And so, so even, even though they sort of got it, they still don't have it yet, and it's, it's taking more and more and more time. And you could argue that it's really not even until Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection, when they receive the Holy Spirit, that, that 
they're Christians. It's at least after the resurrection. And these are guys that were with Jesus for a year and a half, three years, five years. We're not really sure. But it took a long time, and it took a lot of relationship building with Jesus and him going over and over again, hey, I'm going to tell you something about the kingdom of God, and they would tell him a story. And they'd be like, can you explain? Because we do not understand. And then he'd explain it to them, and then they'd kind of get it. And then he'd tell, you know, and it was just, it was a long, constant process of evangelizing them, of, of teaching them this good news, of helping them to understand what it meant that God had become human to become friends with them. So, one of the best things I ever read about evangelism, and I think it applies very well here, was uh, my, one of my favorite theologians, his name is Miroslav Volf. He said, if the golden rule applies to most to anything, it probably should also apply to evangelism. So the golden rule is in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So I took the liberty of, of substituting evangelism in since evangelism is a thing so it should fall under the banner of everything in evangelism evangelize people the same way you would want them to evangelize you this is a fun little guide to think about so i want to look at my in my opinion the best new testament text that 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 looks at a true true evangelism into a different culture because especially what you see in the first part of acts is mostly uh jewish people telling other jewish people that jesus is the jewish messiah and so it's it's really not competing worldviews at least not to the extent that we're talking about um it's really not until you get to paul's missionary journeys when paul is traveling outside of palestine that you really start to see what happens when someone, when two groups of people who don't see the world at all the same way are trying to talk about religion. And so what the, the, the famous go-to text for that is Mars Hill in, um, in Athens. This, uh, so this is, the, uh, this is the Acropolis in Athens. You can see the, the Parthenon and some of that. This little platform right here, if you can see the laser pointer, is Mars Hill. And it was a place where, so the Athenians were they loved wisdom and knowledge and some of the but some of the most famous schools ever were in, were in Athens and uh, so on Mars Hill they would all just sit around and debate all the time and, and and most of the people who actually debated were went to school to study how to debate right and they had they had training all of this rhetoric and all this kind of stuff so people would actually gather because they didn't have television and so it was really fun to go to Mars Hill and to listen to all of the academics argue with each other and, and, and you know, it wasn't like, it, it actually wasn't really uh, formal and nice and clean. It was people were catcalling, and if someone got a sweet burn on someone else, they'd be like, oh. And um, it was just a really, really fun, entertaining kind of a time. And so uh, in one of Paul's missionary journeys, he gets into trouble. In all of his missionary journeys, he gets in trouble. And one particular time, he got into some trouble and had to leave town early. And so he left the rest of his team in Thessalonica, and then he hightailed it out of there, and so he went ahead to Athens, and he basically was just killing time in Athens until his team finished up what they were doing in Thessalonica and got over there to them. And so Acts chapter 17 tells the story of what happened there. So I want to read it to you, and then we're going to do an exercise. So some of you have probably done this before. Don't spoil it for everyone else. If you do, shame on you. But I'm going to read to you, and you can read along if you want, or you can just listen. And I want you, Paul is going to present the gospel to the Athenians. Spoiler alert. 
And so in his gospel presentation, I want you, there there are three things that Paul does or doesn't do. There are three rules of evangelism 101 that Paul breaks. And we haven't taken evangelism 101. Maybe you have. Okay, we're not doing it here. But even if you don't know, just guess. Like, what are three things that you notice that if you were told to share the gospel with someone, you would probably do that Paul doesn't do? Okay, so here we go. Beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for his team in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Okay, so that's where Paul is kind of talking to the people that, that think like him. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others say he seems like he's preaching about some foreign god. So they took him to the high council of the city, which is Mars Hill. All right, he's had a debate. He's kind of been in the minor leagues debating. And they're like, ah, dude, all right, we gotta, we're, we're taking you to the big leagues. So they go up to Mars Hill. And they say, come tell us about this new teaching. You were saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Now, it should be explained that the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, Athens seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. Okay, so they like, they're like, oh, something new. I'm, I'm in, go on. So, Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Here we go. Here's where you start taking notes, trying to figure it out. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one that I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he doesn't have any needs. He, gives himself, uh, he himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as one of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him later and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay. So. Was there anything in there that you thought Paul did strangely or something that you would not have done or anything he left out? About Christ. What about Christ? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first thing is Paul never names Jesus. He makes, he makes a passing reference to him, right? He says, God has appointed one person to judge the world, and he proved it by raising him from the dead. 
So he references him, but he, ne- he never even names him. Anything else? He seems to have an understanding of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing I really want to highlight in what you said, Doug, he's actually he actually quotes uh, two different Greek philosophers, which for the Athenians it was about as close to a sacred text as they got. I mean, you know, that for them their religion was really in like Plato and Aristotle and stuff like that. And so, yeah, for, him, for basically we we could say that Paul is quoting their scriptures. Good. There's one other thing I thought was I thought was interesting, um, and that's. Uh, that's again, he, he references the Old Testament, which at the time was his Bible, right? I mean, they, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They're in the New Testament. Um, but he, he never quotes it. Again, so those are, those are three things that I thought, was, uh, thought were pretty interesting. Was that he doesn't name Jesus, he doesn't quote Scripture, and instead of quoting his Scripture, he quotes their Scripture. So, imagine that I sent you to a mosque, I said, okay, you have to go evangelize the Muslims there, but you're not allowed to name Jesus, you're not allowed to quote from the Bible, and you have to quote from the Quran if you're going to quote from anything. Go. Go to the Hindu temple, you're not allowed to name Jesus, you're not allowed to quote the Bible, and instead you need to quote from the Rig Vedas. Go talk to those atheists, you're not allowed to name Jesus, you're not allowed to quote the Bible. Instead, you need to quote some Richard Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Nietzsche, if you're feeling bold. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I mean, does that like freak any of you out? Like when I was telling you to go do those things, you're kind of like getting a mini panic attack. Like I couldn't do that. No way. But what I think is what I think is fascinating about Paul's model is, and first of all. Did you notice that the first thing it said about Paul was that he was deeply offended by the Athenian idolatry? Okay, this model is not, and we just need to be clear about this, this model is not predicated on all roads lead to heaven. This isn't saying, well, you know, the Koran or the Rig Vedas or Richard Dawkins is equal to the Bible. And so it doesn't matter what you quote, just find something that's spiritual and mushy and, you know, it's fine. That's not what Paul did at all. It says that it says that his first reaction was deep offense. But he he did not lead out of that offense. He did not stand up in Mars Hill and say, You're all a bunch of pagan idol worshippers and you're gonna burn in hell. He might have thought that. That's not how he led. Because again, if you if I'm if I'm going to evangelize the way I would like to be evangelized. If someone just walks up to me and tells me that I'm wrong and I'm going to whatever their version of hell is, I usually turn around and walk away. I'm like, well, I'm not interested in having a conversation with you. And so, even though, even though Paul is deeply convinced that his way is the right way, and that their way is the wrong way, and that there were serious consequences, he says that, right? He's like, the time is coming very soon when God is going to judge the world. And so before... Before, God was patient, but now it is getting critical. So, I mean, again, Paul understands the stakes, and he believes the stakes. 
But that's not what he leads out of. Instead, and this is what you brought up, Doug, he investigates their religion. He studies it deeply. He spends three days walking around the city, exploring it. And he finds this statue to this unknown god. I've got a picture of it. This is actually from Pergamum, not from Athens, but it's another statue that they made to an unknown god. And he says, hey, you know what? I, could, I can use this. And then he, he knows their texts. He knows their religion. He knows the things that they believe to be true. He understands their worldview and the way they think. And perhaps most importantly, he understands that not everything that they believe is false. He understands that some of the things that they believe, some of the aspects of their religion are true. And that means that the seeds of the gospel are already in their religion. Not the whole gospel, but the seeds. So he can start there. He can point at it and he can say, hey, you know that thing that you believe? Well, I believe that too. Do you want to know more about it? Now, this, this model, the reason, I, the reason I love Acts 17 is because this model is, is the same model that we see in the incarnation. It's God leaving God's comfort. I mean, I, I imagine heaven to be a, a nice place. And God leaves it to become human, to come among us, to show us how to get to him. And that's exactly what I see Paul doing in Mars Hill. He goes to them. He becomes one of them. He learns to think like them. He understands their religion. And he, he, he uses that to, to proclaim the truth of the gospel in a way that will make sense to them, in a way that they can understand, in a way that he calls them then to a faith in Jesus. And you see, it's a mixed result, right? I mean, it's not like they all fall down right there and repent. Some of them are like, this dude is completely insane. And other people are like, I want to hear more about this. And so they leave with Paul. And then, and then over, the, over the course of his relationship with them, they come to faith in Christ. So the first thing that we need to understand, and I figured if anything would get me stoned tonight, it would be this, is that other worldviews contain seeds of the gospel. There, there is truth in other religions. You can look at what other people believe. You can look at their worldview. And, and I, I, have, I have yet to meet a single person, no matter how out there their beliefs seem to me, who doesn't at least believe some things that the Bible affirms as truth. I, I, I've yet to meet, and I've met a guy that worships Thor unironically. He wears a hammer necklace, buys the comic books, I think. But he, I mean, even him, like there are things that he believes, and I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's scriptural. So there are seeds of the gospel in, in other people's faith. Uh, the way I've heard some people say this before is that all truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter where you find it. And if you find it somewhere that you don't expect it, God is there working. Um, now, some, some, and so something, something that you'll learn as you begin to learn more about other religions, because they contain the seeds of the gospel, because God is already working in these other, in these other places, 
is that you will actually learn a lot more about your own faith as you begin to learn the others. There's a, a German scholar named Max Müller. He studies religion. And he coined this saying that is now very famous that about religion. And it's, he who knows one knows none. If you only know your own faith, you don't actually understand religion. You don't actually, you actually don't understand, uh, you actually don't understand your own cultural blind spots. You actually don't understand the difference between the gospel of Jesus and the, the things that, that your culture has made the gospel into. Because, well, okay, and maybe this is a point where we disagree, but I have a firm conviction that the way we are practicing the gospel, the way I am practicing the gospel right now, is not 100% the right way. There are things that I believe they're wrong. I don't know what they are, because if I did, I'd change my beliefs about them. But I, I just refuse to believe that in all of human history, I am the first person to get it 100% right. But, but of course, I don't know what I don't have right. I don't know. I hope I'm like 80% right. I don't know. 75 95, you know, but I don't know. And the only way that I'm going to learn more about who God is, is in community with other people who are different from me. And I have found tremendous value over and over and over and over again in learning from people of other faiths and learning to understand their worldviews and learning to understand how they think differently from me. And I've found some things in my own faith that were lacking. For instance... Uh, when I was growing up, I was a, I was a part of a church. Uh, I wouldn't say that we like didn't care about like the environment. And I don't mean that like in a political way. I just mean like in general. I remember thinking to myself like I would litter, and I would think, well, it's not a big deal because God's going to come destroy it all. Like who cares? I mean, honestly, it was like a, like if I even thought about it, that's what I thought. I know it's silly, but like I was just I was in a church that didn't value stewardship of the environment at all. Uh, and again, they didn't like devalue it. The pastor wasn't like, go out and litter because that's proof that you believe Jesus is coming back or something weird like that. It just, we just didn't care about it. It was, it was, it was a non-value. And I, I have a good friend who, uh, who is a practicing Hindu, uh, while we were in grad school. And they, the, the, the Hindus, you'll find out next week, uh, they deeply, deeply respect and care about all of, all created things. And so he, he and I were talking and, and he told me about how, you know, the Hindus believe that, that God is in all things and that all things are a manifestation of God and that that's why they, because I was like, you know, why do Hindus worship cows? That's weird. Like just they're delicious and you should eat them. Um, and so he was, ex he was explaining to me um, why that was. And that was a huge revelation for me. I thought about how I treat things that I believe God created. And it was like a huge wake up call for me. And I didn't, like, convert to Hinduism. It just helped me really understand my own faith better. And I, I actually developed a stronger, deeper faith through my conversation with this friend who was of a different faith. You know, and, and I got to learn more about my own, my own faith. So, so you will absolutely, as, as you develop friendships with people who are, who are of a different faith than you, and as you begin to see the, the fingerprints of God at work in their life and in their belief system, you will also come to a deeper, whole, more whole understanding of your own faith. And it's a cool thing. Uh, we're going to be talking as much about, well, we're going to be talking a lot about Christianity and Christian theology and stuff like that in here, as well as talking about uh, the, uh, other religions. So 
Has any how many how many of you have had to learn a foreign language, or or wanted to? I guess it doesn't have to have been forced. Um, you know this then, right? In order to learn another language, you have to like relearn English, because you don't learn English by learning about participles and predicates and you know nominative and objective and oh, you just learn it because that's what you grew up in. Like you grew up in a soup of English, and so you just gotta do it. And then when you start trying to learn another language, you have to learn all of these things about your own language. And you're like, why is this language so weird? And then you realize, no, English is that way too. You just didn't know it, right? And that's that's the same exact process that happens when you begin learning another religion. Like, why is this religion so goofy? And then you start realizing, hey, mine's kind of goofy too. I just didn't know it because it seems normal to me. And so it's it's a it's a really it's a wonderful thing. It's a it's a really wonderful thing. So the last thing I really want to camp out on before we talk about kind of where we're going to end up in this class is. Before, before you say, I disagree with someone, and I expect you to disagree with people, okay? Before you say, I disagree, be able to say, I understand. Before you say someone else's religion is wrong, make sure you understand it. Make sure you understand why they believe it. Make sure you understand what's at stake in them for this discussion. Make sure that you could articulate their point of view in a way that they would say, yeah, that's what I think. And once you've done that hard work, then disagree. Absolutely disagree. Yes, disagree. Uh, the, the, most, the, <laughs> the most irritating religious conversations I get into are with people who say, well, I, I just kind of think that all, all, all religions are basically the same. And they're all worshiping the same God, and it doesn't really matter. Because, because as someone who has a, has a fairly in-depth knowledge of my own faith, and then a decent working knowledge of other faiths, I can say, well, no, like, actually, Christianity makes some claims about the nature of reality and the nature of God that are fundamentally incompatible with Islam or with Hinduism or with Buddhism or with Judaism or with paganism or with atheism, obviously. And so you can't just say they're all the same. I mean, I guess you can, but then you're just saying everyone's an idiot except for you. And I have found that in my conversations with people of other faiths, we can have marvelous disagreements disagreements that are enriching and fulfilling and growing if we start with mutual respect and friendship. If I do a lot of hard work to make sure I understand what they believe, then they are much more open to listening to me, to hearing my perspective on not only on my own beliefs, but on what they believe too. And I'm, I earn the right to ask them difficult questions. Uh, I had some, I had some Mormon missionaries come to my house one time and, uh, I don't know how much you know about Mormonism, but they're not allowed to drink caffeine, and they have to go around in their full suits no matter what day of the year it is. So it was a particularly nasty, like, July day, and they were, they showed up at my door, like, dripping wet. I mean, they just looked completely miserable. So I was like, hey, can you guys, you guys want to come in and have a glass of lemonade? And, you know, I didn't offer them soda because they can't have caffeine and all that. And they, like, they almost, like, collapsed over my door and they're, yes. And I began a friendship with them. They came by my house every now and again, and we talked about the, you know, well, Mormons would say they're Christians, I would say they're not, and we'll get to that. But we would talk about the differences between our worldviews and our difference between how we understood the scriptures. And I was able to ask them some pretty tough questions and put some pretty hard truths to them 
because we started with friendship first. And then both of them, as the Mormons do, they kind of cycled them out to another place. And they said, hey, so they came by to say goodbye before they were leaving. And they said, can we pass your information on to the next guys? And I was like, yeah, I loved you guys. Like, come on over. And then the next guys that came over blasted me with, you know, the, the typical, you know, whatever. Like, they were rude and they didn't want to hear anything I had to say and all that. And I was like, all right, guys, like, you probably don't need to come back. That's that's enough, you know. And that, I don't know, that, that, that said a lot to me about the difference between really starting with the foundation of friendship and respect. And it also taught me a lot about what it's like to be evangelized brutally uh, the, way that, the way that I have probably evangelized some people before. So, so here's what I want to say about um, our class and about what you should expect from it as we go through these different faiths. Um, first of all, we're going to do a basic introduction to each faith's worldview. I'm going to try my very, very hardest in the limited amount of time we have to give you a, a great understanding of the way they see the world. Uh, basic history, basic ideas about like reality and the way what people are and all of that. Um, we haven't done any religion yet, so I don't know how successful we're going to be. We'll find out next week. Next, uh, we're going to talk about areas of agreement between that faith and Orthodox Christian theology and practice. So again, areas of agreement. Areas of if I'm going to start a conversation, if we're going to start a relationship, let's start here. This is the men of Athens. I see that you are very religious. And you have all of these altars, and you have this one to the unknown God. I want to tell you about that one. Right? That's what that's 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 this part. What, what do we agree on? And it's different for every religion. So that'll be I think that'll be a fun section. And then finally, we're going to talk about the significant areas of disagreement between that faith and Orthodox Christian theology and practice. Why, why isn't that a denomination of Christianity? Why is it a separate religion? What are the important differences? What are the things that at the end of the day, we just can't agree, we just can't agree about these things and say it doesn't really matter? These are the things that really matter. These are the, these are the, things, these are the things that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And the goal of all of this, each week, is to equip you to build a truth-seeking relationship with someone of another faith. Jesus said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And so I believe that if we diligently pursue truth with, with other people, that we will find Jesus if we have an honest, earnest seeking of truth, and if, and if I can sit with another person, it doesn't actually matter what faith they are. If we are both committed to seeking truth, whatever the cost, if we're willing to lay down any of our preconceived notions about what we believe, that a Christian can do that utterly without fear because Jesus is the truth. And so I, I can... I can uh, I can, I can meet with someone of another faith and I can learn about their faith and I can learn why they see it. And I don't, have to, I don't have to be threatened when some of it makes sense. I don't have to be threatened when some of it seems attractive. Because there's truth in other religions. And I don't have to be afraid when my conversation with them highlights some things about my own faith that I'm not comfortable with. Because I'm not 100%, I haven't got God 100% figured out. And this relationship with that other person is actually going to make me a better follower of Jesus, a better seeker of the truth. 
And so even as I am evangelizing, I myself am going to be evangelized. And again, that sounds scary. It's not scary because Jesus is the truth. And if I am moving towards the truth, I'm moving towards Jesus. So, we are going to try to do eight religions. Uh, there are a lot more than eight in the world. We're not, unfortunately, we are not doing Scientology. Um, I know. I'll save that one for when I do sci-fi and literature. Um, we are, uh, we're not, we're <laughs> We're not going to get to like Jehovah's Witness. Uh, we're not going to get to some of those. Um, so hopefully, even if there are religions that we don't get to, you will learn how to learn about these religions. Uh, armed with uh, an honest desire to, protrude, uh, to pursue the truth and access to Wikipedia, uh, hopefully by the end of this class you will feel confident, even if, even if it's a religion we didn't cover, that you will know kind of how to begin a relationship with someone like someone like that. Doesn't matter again if they're a coworker. Uh, if, if you're, uh, I know one person here uh, has uh, some kids in, in soccer that the parents, some parents of the other faiths, uh, are, are I guess the parents of other faiths are on teams with their kids. So like we'll see them in the soccer stands, uh, at schools, at uh, in your neighborhoods, uh, whatever. Um, and, and the goal of this will be that we would become people who are who are imitating Jesus. We are going to these people. We are becoming like them. We are learning uh, to see the world the way they do so that we can introduce them to God, so that we can help them understand who God is um, in his revelation as Jesus. So, Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with a lesson on Hinduism. In the meantime, if you have any questions, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com, find me on Twitter at jrforesteros, or connect with me on Facebook at facebook.com slash jrforesteros. That's J-R-F-O-R-A-S-T-E-R-O-S. And of course, you can always find all the rest of my work on my blog at jrforesteros.com. Thanks very much.